the text is basically 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm only going to read verses 31 to 51 just for the sake of time. It is, a, it is a long chapter, but we'll go back and recap. It's a pretty familiar story. So here is 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 31 to 51. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of its mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog? Do you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, it is good to be in your presence. Uh, it is good to be called um, your people, uh, and to be called uh, this day uh, to worship you, to set aside uh, our work 
um, and to orient ourselves uh, towards you, uh, towards your word, to hear uh, your word to your people. We pray that we, would, that we would receive your word as your word, that we would receive it as the word spoken by the God who made us, the God who saves us, uh, the God who shapes our hearts, the God who is even now sustaining and preserving and governing um, everything. Father, it is a great comfort us, comfort to us, to know that that's who you are, that you are our sustainer and our provider and our governor. Because we look at the world around us or the world within our own homes uh, and we see chaos. We see chaos around us uh, in our politics. We see chaos uh, in uh, the, 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 the tension, um, the strife uh, that has overtaken our country. Uh, we see chaos uh, as we face this pandemic. Um, that, uh, that, that continues um, to um, oppress us uh, in, in many ways, uh, even as we move from phase to phase. And we also see chaos in our homes. Um, we see chaos uh, in, the, in the broken relationships uh, that are perhaps uh, even under greater strain uh, now that we're spending more time together. And we see chaos um, in the loss of, um, of economic security. Uh, we see chaos um, simply in our fears uh, about what the future will hold that we don't know. And so it is good uh, to come before you and say that you are God, uh, that you are God in heaven, that you are the Lord Almighty um, who reigns over all things, uh, judge uh, of all the earth. Um, Father, you're a gracious, good Father uh, to us. Um, and we can consider times of testing and trial uh, to be the discipline of a good uh, and loving Father. Lord, as we approach uh, this, your word, um, I want to pray uh, again simply that the words of my mouth uh, and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray, amen. Have a seat. Well, when I was a child, uh, I was an impressionable uh, youth. That's probably not more uh, than average. I think that's true of most people. Um, we see models. We see people uh, that we want to be like, whether it's people we know, could be our fathers in many cases. I know my dad was a cyclist. I ended up doing a lot of cycling. My dad was a star baseball player. I definitely played baseball for a few years. Um, my dad was an engineer. That probably pushed me in the direction of uh, studying math and, and economics. Um, sometimes it's people we don't know. Uh, I remember uh, when, I was, when I was eight years old, I think it was the first NBA game, the first uh, basketball game that I ever watched on TV. I wasn't a huge basketball fan growing up. Um, I watched game seven of the 1987 NBA Finals, where the Los Angeles Lakers beat uh, the Celtics. Um, and, and that game had this effect on me. It, it affected me in a couple ways. One is that for the rest of my childhood, uh, I was a Los Angeles Lakers fan, um, an error of which I have since repented. Um, but the other thing um, is that I remember watching that game and deciding that's what I want to do. I'm going to be a basketball player. And for some reason, this is 1987, so this is the Showtime Lakers. This was Magic Johnson's team. For some reason, I don't know why, the guy that really got my attention, that I really wanted to be like, wasn't Magic. 
Um, it was Kareem. It was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Um, seven foot two, the center. I, for the life of me, he was nearing the end of his career. He was definitely past his prime. But for some reason, that's the guy I wanted to be. I practiced this sky hook shot that he had again and again and again in my front yard, the playground. My parents, being kind people, I guess, never, never took me aside and said, you know, son, as far as records go back, there hasn't been a man in our family over five foot nine, so you might want to consider, you know, other career options. They, 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 did, they did, decided not to break that to me. I figured it out on my own uh, eventually. Um, my point is simply that models, role models, uh, are, are powerful things. Uh, they give us a sense of who we want to be, of who we could be, uh, of what our future could hold. Um, and when we read stories uh, in the Old Testament, there are a lot of people uh, in the Old Testament that can look like role models to us. Um, and one of the things that I really want us to do this summer as we're reading through the life of David, uh, which as I've said is the longest, the richest, the most complex single narrative um, in all of ancient literature, I want us to be thinking uh, not only about what we're learning from these, these stories, um, how they're revealing God's character to us, how they're pointing us at Jesus, but, but also I want to be thinking about, like, how do we read these things? How do we read the Bible? How do we read the Old Testament? Um, if you grew up in the kind of Sunday school culture that, that I grew up in, David was a role model. And, and this story, David and Goliath, more than any other, right? The point of this story was be courageous, like David. Face down your giants. That giant, it stood for your fears, it stood for, uh, you know, the math test that you were worried about, it stood for the bully at school, whatever it was. Um, the point of the story was, be like David. Um, more recently, I've heard this text preached uh, entirely in terms of how it points us beyond David uh, at Jesus and says, no, 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 this isn't about being like David. Um, this is about showing us the true David, uh, showing us Jesus. And what I want us to see this morning is that I don't think it's as simple as deciding one or the other of those two things. I don't think we have to put those two uh, in competition with each other uh, to the degree that, that we may have done. Um, there is a lot in this text and a lot in David uh, that really is worth emulating. He is showing a kind of courage that we do want to have, that we do need to have. Um, at the same time, he is pointing beyond himself, and we do need to see how he is pointing at Jesus. And what I want to argue this morning is that those two aren't in tension with each other. They don't push each other one to the side. They really work together, that it's only when we see how David is pointing us past himself and pointing us at Jesus, that we can have courage like David, that we can see David as a role model um, and, and be like him uh, in, this, in this text. So that's, that's what we're going to try to get at this morning. There's, there's going to be three things for us to look at. First, I want to talk about courage for the battle that you face. Second, I want to talk about seeing the champion that you need. And lastly... I want to talk about walking with the spirit 
that we've been given. And it's the Spirit that's going to tie these things together. It's going to be really interesting to see the role the Spirit plays in David's life and to think about how the Spirit ties these things together. So we're going to look at courage for the battle you face. We're going to see the champion that you need. And then we're going to talk about walking with the Spirit that we've been given. All right. So first of all, courage for the battle. Um, let's just like kind of recap the story. We picked up in the middle of the story. Um, it is a well-known one, but um, the Philistines, right? So the Philistines are uh, this, this people who, they're, they're, they're one of the enemies of Israel. They show up mostly in the books of Judges and Samuel. By the time we get to the end of 2 Samuel, the Philistines are mostly out of the picture. Um, but at this point, they're a major threat uh, to Israel's safety. And our scene opens uh, in the south, you know, kind of a bit west of Jerusalem and Bethlehem, the south part of Judah, um, with the Philistines camped on one hill and the armies of Israel camped on another. And rather than those two armies going at it and doing battle, um, out steps a champion, out steps Goliath. Um, and he's described um, uh, as being huge. He's described uh, as being essentially invincible, uh, just this mighty, mighty champion. And he's challenging Israel to send out a champion of their own uh, to take him on in single combat, right? And what we see uh, is that Israel, hearing this, is terrified, um, specifically Saul. So Saul, the king, uh, is there. Uh, remember, last week we saw that David had been anointed king, but he hasn't yet come to the throne. We're going to go through several weeks where Saul is still the king. So Saul is still the king, and it says, uh, he is afraid, and all Israel, dismayed uh, and greatly afraid. Um, now, it's actually worth pointing out this description of Goliath, just so you understand what it is uh, that, um, that Saul and Israel is up against. We get a lot of detail about Goliath, and that's not normal for ancient literature. If you, if you read a novel today, it's entirely normal to get lengthy physical descriptions of the character. You know how tall they are, you know what color their hair is, you know, you get, you get a lot of sense of how they look and how they carry themselves and, and what they look like. Very rich description. Um, ancient literature tend to be, tended to be very sparing in those kinds of details, focused much more just on what happened, what they said. Um, the fact that we get verse after verse after verse describing Goliath, not only in his size, so we get his size, we're told he's about eight and a half feet tall, um, which is to say he is gargantuan. Um, we also get all of this description of his armor. And it's very, very specific. Um, it talks about his helmet. It talks about his coat of mail. Uh, it talks about how much it weighs. It talks about the fact that his shield is so large that he has to have somebody carry it for him. Um, Goliath is actually on the forward edge of a technological revolution. He's not only huge, um, he has got the latest in, in technology. When you see Goliath walking out, you know, in, in the coat of mail and the helmet with the javelin and all of this, um, this is Iron Age technology. And this was a period of time where it was, the world was just going from Bronze Age to Iron Age. Um, 
what David's got is essentially Bronze Age technology. Um, but Goliath, he's got all of the size uh, on, on his side, um, and he's got the latest and greatest in technology, and he's trusting in that uh, to give him victory, which may sound familiar, uh, putting a lot of trust in technology uh, to, give, to give victory. And Goliath's focus, likewise, you know, when, when David comes out, um, it's on how little David has, how small he is, the fact that he's coming at him with, with a stick. Um, his, his entire focus is on, I am going to win uh, because I'm bigger than you and I've got the technology to beat you. Um, that's where his strength uh, is, is lying. This is, this is one of the first things that we have to see about what courage is. What is, what is it to have courage like David? Um, we actually see several examples of what it's not along the way, and this is the first one. Um, courage is not relying uh, on your own size, uh, on your own power, uh, on your technology, on all of the advantages that you can accrue uh, to yourself. In fact, in this story, that ends up getting Goliath in a lot of trouble. Um, he essentially overlooks David. David, when he wins this battle, he arguably doesn't win in spite of his weakness, but because of it. Uh, he wins because Goliath never sees coming uh, what David uh, can, can hurl at him. It's kind of like, like in the Lord of the Rings, you know, when, when the genius of Gandalf's plot uh, to get the ring into Mordor is to give it not to the strongest, right? Not to the king, uh, not to the elves, not to the eagles, but to a hobbit right, uh, who doesn't attract any attention until it's too late. Courage is not relying uh, on, on, your own, on your own strength. Look, on the other hand, at how David uh, responds uh, to Goliath when Goliath taunts him, right? What he says is, look, yes, you've got a sword, you've got a spear, but I'm coming to you in the name of the Lord. And this day... The Lord will deliver you into my hand. Why? So that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And so this whole assembly, my people, he means, my people will know that the Lord doesn't save with sword and spear. See, what's setting David apart here, the first thing we want to see about what does characterize his kind of courage, is something that we saw two weeks ago when we looked at Hannah. David is able... Remember, we saw Hannah able to read her story into a larger story. We saw her praying about the fact that she was barren, she had no children, in a world that told her that she had to have children in order to mean anything. And she was able to pray that into a larger story about a God who sees the barren, who hears the cry of the afflicted, who remembers the downtrodden. Um, it's something you call theological imagination. She's reading her personal story into a bigger theological story. It's the same thing that David is doing. For David, he doesn't see his diminutive size and his Bronze Age, if that, you know, sling and stick and stones uh, technology and put that against what Goliath has. What he sees is a battle in which it's the Lord that's taking the battlefield. And the question he keeps asking, so this was a part that we, that we didn't read, 
um, leading up to him going out and fighting with Goliath, he keeps asking this question, um, which is essentially, who does this guy think he is? How, how, can this, how can this stand? How can it be that this Philistine is standing there insulting the Lord of heaven and earth? Doesn't he know who he's talking to? How can this be? Uh, and so he's going out, um, assured that he's going to have victory, not because um, of what he has uh, to take into the battle, but because he sees the Lord uh, fighting, fighting this battle. So, okay, so, so one question then. Does that mean that to have courage like David simply means have faith? Have faith like David has, and then everything will be okay. So that can't be right, because there's too many examples of people in the Bible who did have faith like David, and things were not okay. Um, you know, John the Baptist had great faith, uh, and things did not go well for him. Uh, the prophets, a lot of them had great faith. Things did not go well, go well for them. Jesus, primary example. Um, things do not turn out well uh, for him uh, in, in, in his life. Um, it can't be it can't be that courage is a matter of having such great faith that you know that everything is going to turn out right. David's courage is such that he's going out into this battle even knowing that things might not turn out for him. He knows that the Lord will win somehow. Um, but he can't know uh, that, that, that things are going to turn out uh, for him. He sees the size of the giant. He knows just how big Goliath is. He knows what Goliath has in his hand. He's able to list it. Um, but he knows uh, the size uh, of, of his God. As I've been thinking about, um, you know, the things, the things happening uh, in, our, in our country uh, over, these, over these past weeks, um, one of the things that, that has, has occurred to me, you know, I remember um, what we've seen since George Floyd was killed um, has stood out as being particularly significant. Um, but I remember similar kinds of turmoil, maybe not quite as large, not as prominent, not as much, but similar kinds of turmoil uh, four and five years ago um, when the Emmanuel Nine uh, were killed in that, in that prayer meeting. Um, you know, that, that one horrible week um, when Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed in the same week, uh, and it was the same week that uh, that there were five police officers in Dallas um, that, that lost their lives in an ambush. Um, I remember the same sense of just despair, uh, the same sense of uh, just a fraught, uh, broken world um, that we live in. Um, and yet, somehow, the country, you know, we seem only to be able to keep our mind on one crisis at a time. Um, you know, why haven't we been thinking about this nonstop for the last five years? Well, one reason is because in 2017, Harvey Weinstein 
hit the newspapers. And then Larry Nassar hit the newspapers. Uh, and the Me Too movement was under, underway. Um, one thing I think it's very important uh, that we do as we think about the problem of sin is that we not minimize it in any way. And we have a really hard time with this because when we look at a big, big problem, you know, like racial injustice, it's just so big. It's so big that it can push to the side another big problem, like structural sexism that's still in our society. We have a hard time thinking about, about both of those at the same time. Those things are both giants that we, that we face. And even those aren't the only giants that we face. Uh, there are things in our personal lives that are, that are just as big. Opioid addiction is a giant. Addiction to pornography is a giant. Estranged relationships, you know, that have gotten so bitter and so cold you can't even remember what the argument was to begin with. All you know is that you don't know where to start. Um, and our, our tendency, you know, because these things are so big, our tendency is to try to shrink them down uh, and to um, push them away, you know, and, and, and deny and use, you know, very subtle, sophisticated, and sometimes even theological ways of avoiding really looking at the problem. Um, you know, we, we've, we've been formed very, very much uh, by the world that we live in. Um, it is a world that values individualism. It is a world um, that wants us all to be exceptional. Uh, it is a world in which we have a really hard time facing things that we cannot handle. We really do not like being out of control. We don't like being faced with problems um, that we can't manage or understand, much less overcome. But do you see how we rob ourselves? The nature of David's courage is he's able to accurately, truthfully look at this giant and see just how big and scary and unbeatable he is. And the only reason he can go out on the, on the battlefield is because he's got a bigger God. He knows that God is bigger than that. When we look at the problems in our world, in our lives, all of it, and find ways to push them aside and to minimize and to rationalize them away. We're robbing ourselves by not saying that, yes, those things are sin. They are real, uh, and they need to be named as sin. We rob ourselves because if Jesus is the savior of sin, then he's the savior from those things too. The bigger we understand the problem to be, the bigger he has to be as a savior. And one of the things that I want us to learn from David when we look at the Psalms, this week, by the way, there's no Psalm that directly goes with this, with this passage, but, but look at Psalm 20. Um, that's what we're going to use for prayer. Look at Psalm 21 also. These are royal Psalms. David's praying his triumph. Uh, he's praying his confidence, but he's also praying about where, where he puts his trust and his hope. I want us to learn from David how to look square in the face, the giants, uh, and to use our imagination, use our prayer uh, to lift God up, to lift Jesus up, to be a bigger Savior 
than we've understood him to be uh, in, in the past. Um, it's only then that we're able to, to talk to sin like David talks to this giant. Who do you think you are? Let me give you, give you an example of what that sounds like. Here's, here's someone talking to sin in this way. This happens to be Martin Luther. Um, and you'll be surprised when you hear what he says, but this is from his commentary on Galatians. Um, this is not what you usually hear in, in a commentary. Um, Luther says, By faith in Christ, a person may gain such sure and sound comfort that he need not fear the devil, sin, death, or any evil. Sir devil, he may say, I am not afraid of you. I have a friend whose name is Jesus Christ, in whom I believe. He has abolished the law, condemned sin, vanquished death, and destroyed hell for me. He is bigger than you, Satan. He has licked you and holds you down. You cannot hurt me. This is the faith that overcomes the devil. It's like a few sentences later that he's taunting the law. He calls the name by law. He says, Mr. Law, I'm a sinner. What are you going to do about it? Again, not the way commentaries are, are, are written today, uh, but, but worth reading. Um, for this kind of courage, we need theological imagination. Uh, we need wisdom. Uh, we need to be able to pray uh, the way that David prays. And this brings us right to our second point. We need to see our champion. Now, I've already given this away. The champion, of course, is Jesus. Um, we need to see how Jesus is a champion for us. Um, so I mentioned before that what Goliath is calling for is this idea of single combat. Okay? So this was, this was actually a, a, a common practice uh, in the ancient Near East, um, that rather than two armies fighting each other, each would send out one person. The idea was um, that whoever won this, this battle, this one-on-one this -on -one battle, had the gods on their side. And so you didn't really need to have like the whole battle with the loss of life that that would entail. Um, you knew who was going to win. So this was a common thing. Um, very interesting, the only actual use of the word champion in this passage refers to Goliath, right? It's in verse 4. Um, it says, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion uh, named Goliath. Um, and that word champion, it actually means the man between, right? So it's, it gives you this, this visual image of what, it's, of what it looks like. You've got these two armies, and between them out come two champions um, to, do, to do single battle. But do you see what this means in terms of what it means uh, to be a champion? Um, for David to go out as a champion for his people means that he's not just fighting for Israel. He is actually fighting as Israel. When David walks out, it's as though all of Israel is walking out with him. When Goliath walks out, it's as though all of Philistia is walking out with him. Um, what that means is that it's not that Israel is going to see David's courage and valor and be inspired by this, right? And, and, and that's going to lead them to victory. No, when David wins, Israel wins. The battle is over. There's nothing left to be done. The victory is soon, is theirs as soon as Goliath is dead. Now, this, of course, is pointing us straight at Jesus, right? Because one day there's going to be another 
David, a son of David, another son of Jesse from Bethlehem. There's going to be another one uh, who's going to be weak, uh, who's going to be poor, who's going to be unimpressive. Um, there's going to be another one who's going to fight for his people. Um, but the good news of the gospel is this, right? That, that when Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't just go to fight against sin and death for his people. He goes to fight against sin and death as his people. When he wins, you win. To put your faith in Christ is to be attached to his victory so that when he goes to the cross, when he pays that penalty, when he rises to new life, you are treated as though you yourself had gone to the cross. You yourself had paid the penalty for your sin. You yourself had risen. It's the guarantee that we will. The gospel has to begin with a good, realistic, hard look at the bad news. But the good news is all the better. Because we can attach ourselves to Jesus by faith, the victory over sin and death and what we cannot possibly overcome on our own is ours when it is his. Not as a matter of being inspired. Now, I said when I started this sermon that it seems like those are two different ways of looking at the same story, right? We've talked about courage for the battle. We've talked about the nature of David's courage. We've talked about how David points past himself to the champion that we need to see. How do those two go together? How is it that seeing our champion can itself be the very vehicle, the very means by which uh, we do become more and more uh, like David? And more to the point, more and more like Christ, because that's the goal. Um, that's what God's at work doing, shaping us to be more and more like Christ. But how does this happen? Well, this is where we need to talk about walking with the spirit that we've been given. Um, I want to back up just a little bit in 1 Samuel. Um, if you notice, the last verse that we read last week, right after David is anointed, it says, The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And then, the very next verse that we didn't read, the scene shifts to Saul. 1 Samuel 16, 14 says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Um, it's very interesting to, to notice that in the way the Old Testament talks about the Holy Spirit and the way the New Testament talks about the Holy Spirit is different. In the Old Testament, the Spirit tends to be given to very specific people at very specific times to accomplish specific tasks. Uh, so this is true of judges, this is true of kings, this is true of prophets. Um, but it's almost as though, it's almost as though the Spirit can only be given, uh, it, it, it is only given to so many people uh, at a time, not to everyone at once. There's actually a place where Moses uh, has the Spirit and is having difficulty governing the people, and God says, well, gather some of your elders and I'll take some of the Spirit that I gave you and I'll give it to them. That's language that doesn't appear in the New Testament. Um, because in the New Testament, instead what we have is God's Spirit poured out onto the whole church, beginning in Acts 2, uh, the passage that you guys just, just went through uh, here in, in Newton. The Spirit empowers 
the life that we live in Christ. Uh, the Spirit um, enables us uh, to walk in step with Him. What you see happening, and you saw this a lot in Acts, is that when the Spirit descends on people, what happens? Well, it's often connected to people hearing the good news and believing and repenting and confessing and being baptized. Um, it's often connected to people praising Jesus newly. It's often connected to sermons being preached. And there's a good reason for that. Do you know what the Spirit does? Do you ever ask yourself, what, what is the mission of the Spirit? Like, what does the Spirit do? We actually get a pretty direct answer to this uh, from Jesus himself. Um, when he's talking to his disciples in John 14 to 16. In chapter 16, he says, um, when I send the Spirit, he will glorify me. That's what he's going to do. In chapter 14, he says, the Spirit will remind you of everything that I taught you. The mission of the Spirit is to point us to Jesus. It's to point us to his glory. It's to glorify him. And John very interestingly, but very consistently. You should take a look at this. Read the Gospel of John and notice how often Jesus' glory is identified with Jesus' cross. Talks about the death by which he would glorify the Father, the death by which he would be glorified. Um, at the end of his life, he says, now my hour of glory has come, and it's very clear he's talking about the cross. The mission of the Spirit is precisely to get our eyes fixed on Jesus and specifically fixed on the cross. If you want one verse that sums this up, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, we, as we behold His glory, as we look on Jesus, as we look on his cross, are transformed into his image. It's precisely by seeing our champion, precisely by seeing what he has done for us, that we are changed and made more like him. This is how these things are connected. It's how they go together. Why would that be? Let me just close with this this last thought, and it's one more hint of what courage is. You know, courage is not the absence of fear. Um, courage is the presence of a joy that can overcome your fear. The writer of Hebrews wants us to fix our eyes on Jesus, and it says that we ought to fix our eyes uh, on him, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The courage that takes Jesus to the cross is a joy. It's for the joy that was set before him that he endures the cross. Now, what is that? What is the joy that was set before him? What did he have to gain by going to the cross? What did he not have? Son of God second person of the Trinity. He left his father's courts above. What did he have to gain by going from the cross? There's one thing. There's only one thing that he had to gain. And it was you. You are the joy 
of the Son that gave him the courage to be obedient to his Father by the power of the Spirit. You are that joy. Look at that. See him making you his joy as he goes to the cross. And you'll make him your joy. And that is what will give you courage. That is what will change you. Um, that is what will shape you more and more uh, into the likeness of our champion. Can we pray together? Let's pray.